the early church could have chosen to include just one gospel in our Bibles. After all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include uh, the essential elements of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. They all uh, stand on their own in telling the good news of what God has done in Christ. But the early church decided to include all four because each of them makes a, a unique contribution to our understanding of the person and the work of the Messiah. Each of them has a unique perspective on his ministry, and each one actually includes unique material, um, particular to that gospel, that offers this perspective that we need to hear. So the modern church developed something called the Revised Common Lectionary. That's a a three-year cycle of readings recommended for use in worship. It's designed to provide churches with an overview of the Bible in a systematic way over the course of three years. And every year, um, one of the so-called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is featured throughout that entire year, while um, John is featured at particular times throughout each of the years of the three-year cycle. Our current liturgical year, which began back in Advent and runs through the end of November, uh, is Luke's year. And so over the course of these past 10 months, we have been focusing on Luke and Luke's particular contribution to our theology. Today, we're wrapping up a four-week sermon series as part of that endeavor called The Moral of the Story. Throughout September, we've been talking about several of Luke's most famous passages. These are are stories from Jesus' ministry that only appear in the Gospel of Luke. I'm grateful that the early church included Luke's account because without it, um, we would not have For example, the story of the Good Samaritan, which we talked about in week one of this series. We would not have the story of the prodigal son, uh, which we spent a couple of weeks on. Today's reading comes near the end of Luke's gospel, and and the way Luke tells the story, uh, there are a total of 24 chapters in Luke, and 10 of those chapters compose something scholars call the travel log. So Jesus leaves Galilee on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's the Passover where he's arrested by the Romans. And along the way for these these 10 chapters, he teaches and engages with people and does miracles. Um, And what we're told in, in three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that on his way to Jerusalem, his last stop before Jerusalem is Jericho. Now, for those who have been around the church for a while, we're just a few verses away from the story of what we call Palm Sunday. So this is at the end of that long journey to Jerusalem. Jesus has been preaching and teaching and doing miracles. He's about to enter what we call Holy Week. And this story of this encounter only appears in Luke. This character that we're reading about only appears in Luke. So this is uh, Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7 right now. And then we'll come back and and read the rest later. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Luke. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a, a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up in the tree and said, thank you. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what he said. He did a little with a song. 
Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried down, was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and say, he, who, he has gone to be a guest of one who is a sinner. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I love uh, the Gospel of Luke. I love this story. I love that children's song based on the story. And I love what this story has to teach us. Now, when we read the story of Zacchaeus, we need to understand just why it is that tax collectors were exceedingly unpopular in the New Testament era. It was not because of the obvious reason that people are not particularly fond of paying taxes. That's true, but there's much more to the story than that. You see, uh, the Romans would auction the right to collect taxes to these private entities, and these rights always were sold to the highest bidder, and then these entities would in turn sell their rights to collect the taxes to individual speculators in each province. So that by the time the tax collector showed up at your door, backed by the might of the Roman army if necessary, you were paying the original tax uh, plus the profit of two middlemen. And tax collectors were entitled to collect as much as they were able. Members of the Jewish community who were willing to make their uh, living in this way, uh, in some cases by essentially extorting exorbitant amounts of money from their fellow community members, were doubly despised. So when the Gospels tell us that, that Jesus kept the company of tax collectors, whatever we feel about taxes currently, it was much worse than that in that day. We have to remember that for Jesus' community, these folks were essentially villains because they were, they were thought to be greedy opportunists who were getting rich at the expense of their fellow Israelites. And in Luke's case, in this, in this story here, um, it's, it's even worse than that because Luke adds a descriptor. And the thing about this descriptor is it does not appear anywhere else in Greek literature. <laughs> as far as we know, Luke might have made up this title to, to emphasize his point. Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector, which means that he would be the worst of the worst for Luke's audience. So if you remember back in week one of the series, we talked about the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. And we talked about um, how in Luke's day, in terms of ethnicity and religion, Samaritans were the worst. So this is back at the beginning of the travelogue, just as Jesus is leaving Galilee and journeying to Jerusalem, uh, he tells the story of what seems an impossible thing, like a, it's incongruous to think of the Good Samaritan for first century Jewish communities. And Jesus is essentially telling his audience to be like the, the Samaritan. Now, that's at the beginning of the travelogue. And now here near at the end of the long journey, so the bookends of this journey, he's highlighting another unlikely person to emulate. In terms of occupations, tax collectors were the worst. And as we're about to read, Jesus is going to praise this villain at the end of his journey, just as he praised the Samaritan at the beginning of his journey. And there's a lot of things, like every scripture passage, to glean and interpret from uh, this particular story. I think, I think one question that this story raises is whether or not we can identify with Zacchaeus, not the rich tax collector part, but instead his, his enthusiasm and his, his passion for Jesus. Are we as passionate about Christ as 
Zacchaeus was, um, which is to say, in our own spiritual lives, are we seeking Jesus the way Zacchaeus does in this beloved story? If even, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector can take his spirituality this seriously, are we doing the same thing? That's a, that's a good question for us to think about uh, as we finish the story. So this is Luke 19, eight to 10. Everybody's grumbling, they're mad because Jesus is going to this sinner's house for dinner. So Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and to save the lost. There are a lot of ways to preach this text. Um, I've preached it on it a couple of times during stewardship season, which makes sense because Zacchaeus's faithfulness is so clearly expressed in his generosity. His response to God's grace is to practice the spirituality of giving. That's an, there's an important lesson there, uh, but we're still a couple of weeks away from stewardship season, so uh, that's not the direction we're going today. We could also spend some time talking about the grumbling crowd because when Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' home for dinner, Luke tells us all who saw it began to grumble because he was going to visit a sinner. And there's a whole sermon in there, I think, about how we, we sometimes approach our spirituality, sometimes we approach our, our theology from a scarcity model, thinking that, that God's grace is somehow, somehow finite. It's as though we assume that if, if God loves even the ones we consider to be the most unworthy, whoever that is for us, in this case, even the tax collectors, even the, the chief tax collectors or the Samaritan, like Jesus talked about before, that there will somehow be less grace for us. You know, sometimes we get trapped in that thinking. Now we know, of course, intellectually that that's not the way grace works, but still sometimes, emotionally anyway, we're like the, the older son in the story of the prodigal that we talked about the past couple of weeks. Sometimes we get confused about the way grace works. We sometimes get offended that God would um, not feel obligated to operate under the same conditions that we, we human beings deem fair, right? We talked about that last week, so we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. Reading the story this time around, I was most struck by the last thing that Jesus says in the next to last encounter that he has before Palm Sunday. This is near the end, not just of his long journey on the road to Jerusalem, but near the end of his, his long ministry where he embodied um, a simple lesson. And it's a lesson that, that never fails to surprise us, never fails to astonish us, never fails to challenge us. But in my opinion, it also, it also never fails to comfort. And, and Jesus reminds us of it in this passage. His mission is this, the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Repeatedly, consistently, persistently throughout his ministry, in some of the most famous stories by him and about him, Jesus makes clear that, that whether or not we're seeking him, <laughs> he is always seeking us, no matter where we are on our journeys of faith, no matter what we've done or left undone, no matter how worthy or unworthy we may feel, 
the God revealed in Jesus Christ loves us unconditionally and is always, always seeking a relationship with us. Fred Craddock was a a longtime professor of preaching at Candler School of Theology, which is at Emory University in Atlanta. It's a United Methodist Seminary. And just like the, the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal and Zacchaeus are some of the most beloved stories in Luke's gospel, so Fred Craddock uh, told a story, a true story, that became beloved lore for an entire generation of preachers. After the second service, Don told me he heard Fred Craddock tell this story personally. It was so beloved that one of my professors at Perkins School of Theology asked him to retell it in an interview one time just so she would have it for posterity and our class got to hear the recording of this homiletical legend telling one of his most beloved stories and uh, it goes like this. A seminary professor was vacationing with his wife in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It was probably Fred Craddock. And they were eating uh, breakfast at a little restaurant and they were hoping to enjoy a quiet meal. And while they were waiting for their food, they noticed this this distinguished looking, uh, white haired man moving from table to table and he was kind of chatting up the guests. And this professor who was introverted by nature and did not have any desire to meet strangers on his vacation with his wife leaned over and he whispered to her, oh God, I hope he doesn't come over here. You know where this is going. Sure enough, the man came over to their table. Where are you folks from, he says in this really fine Tennessee accent. Oklahoma, the professor reluctantly answered. Ah, well, it's great to have you here in Tennessee. The stranger said, what what do you do for a living? (laughs) And at this point, the professor was dreading how long this conversation would last, and he really felt like not answering the question honestly. Uh, But he said, I teach at a seminary. Oh, you teach preachers how to preach. Well, have I got a story for you. And with that, to this professor's chagrin and horror, this man pulled up a chair and sat down at their table. He said, you see that mountain over there? Pointing out the restaurant window. He says, not far from the base of that mountain, uh, there was a boy who was born to an unwed mother. And he had, a, he had a hard time growing up because every place he went, he was always asked the same question. This is a very common question in small towns in Tennessee and the South and lots of other places. Uh, he says, they ask him, hey, uh, who's your dad? That's a common question. You want to know, everybody's connected somehow. How do I know you? Who's your dad? He would get asked over and over again. It was an innocent enough question and a common enough question in small Southern towns because everybody knows everybody else, but it was one that filled this particular boy with a sense of shame because he did not know the answer. Whether whether he was in school or the grocery store or the drugstore, people would ask him this same common question, sometimes out of curiosity, but then the older he got, but some of the boys, it was asked out of malice, who's your dad? He would hide at recess. He would hide at lunchtime from other students. He didn't want to answered this question, he would avoid going into stores because that very common question cut him so deeply. Well, when he was about 12 years old, there was a new preacher who moved to the church where he went. And this boy would uh, have a practice. He would always go in late and slip out early so that he could avoid hearing the common question about his questionable 
parentage. But one day, this new preacher said the benediction too quickly, and this kid got caught, and he had to walk out with the crowd. Just about the time he got to the back door, the, the new preacher, not knowing anything about him and wanting to make a friendly family connection, put his hand on his shoulder and said, hello, young man, who's your dad? And the whole church uh, got deathly quiet. And in his mind, he could feel every eye looking at him. He, he knew that everyone knew that he did not know the answer to that question. This new preacher, though, sensed the situation around him and using the discernment that only the Holy Spirit can give us sometimes, said to that embarrassed little boy loud enough for everybody to hear, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. You are a child of God. And with that, he patted the boy on his shoulder and he leaned down and he whispered in his ear, son, You've got a great inheritance. Go out and claim it. And the boy smiled for the first time in a long time. And he walked out the door of that church, a changed person. He was never the same again. And whenever anybody would ask him that common question about his wayward father, he would just tell them, I am a child of God. The distinguished gentleman got up from the table. He said, isn't that a great story? And as he turned to leave, he said, you know, if that preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably never would have amounted to anything. And then he walked away. This seminary professor and his wife sat in stunned silence. And he he called the hostess over and he said, do you know who that man was? And she grinned and said, honey, of course. Everybody here knows him. That's, That's Ben Hooper. He was the governor of Tennessee. (laughs) friends the moral of the story of Zacchaeus is the moral of the story of Jesus ministry that our God has always been is right now and will forever be seeking a relationship with every single one of us may we remember that gospel truth whenever we feel less than whenever we feel unworthy, whenever we feel distraught or lonely or overwhelmed. And maybe just as importantly, may God grant us the willingness and the enthusiasm of Zacchaeus to seek God too. Amen.